Oh, we got there pretty fast. We were waving palms just a few seconds ago, and now we're in the garden saying, Maker, Maker, thy will be done. This is a quick week. Things happen fast during this week. We end up with Jesus in the garden saying these prayers to God. If you can take it away, take it away. You know, I'd, I'd rather not do this, you know, but your will be done. But what I find so precious about this story that we don't often look at is that Jesus makes sure there are others with him. And he tells him what he needs. Jesus essentially asks for help. Says, James, John, Peter, y'all come and stay awake with me through this night. Because it's going to be a hard night. And I need you there while I'm struggling with what's about to happen. Jesus showed vulnerability. Jesus showed that he needed them. He even told them how and he even went back and reminded them a couple of times, I need you, stay awake. Come on now. I'm wrestling. I need you. Stay awake. Last week, we talked about Jesus' family of choice and what it meant to be in that loving family and to make things happen with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. This week, we turned to his ministry partners of choice, the ones with whom he shared more than anyone else in the ministry, the ones he brought up onto the mountain of transfiguration with him, the ones he invited into the garden to stay close by. I need you. Stay awake. I need you, stay with me during this time of trial while I'm hurting. And it happened so fast, weren't we just waving palms? I mean, literally we were, right? Just at the beginning of the service. You know, it just seems like it was a few days ago that there was a parade. You know, how did we get to this place so fast, so quickly? You know, let's go back and look and see. It's one of those things where you have to go back and find out, okay, where did we come to this place? And Jesus started the week in fine style, if you remember. He's got a colt and a donkey and riding on top of them. You know, I don't know how he rode on two animals, but he must have been very talented. You know, if you read it in the scripture. Some uh, uh, commentators have said that maybe he was a circus rider. You know, one foot on each, coming in. I don't know, I don't think so. But you know, that parade was a parody that action was in order to be in people's faces. On the other side of town, there was the emperor's parade, the Roman parade coming in with vehicles of uh, war, with chariots, with soldiers coming in on one side of town. And then Jesus has this parade coming in on the other side of town. And not riding in a chariot, but on a donkey and a colt somehow. You know, people, peasants are waving palm fronds around and putting them on the ground with their cloaks and they're, they're shouting Hosanna. And it's a parody of the parade of power on the other side. It's a parade that says, you know, you think you have power over us, but here we are. You think you may be oppressing us fully, but here we are. You know, I think this palm parade had much more in common with our gay pride parade, our LGBTQ week where we actually tell the world, we come out in different ways and we say, you may think you've got control, but you know what? We're here. And it usually says we're queer. And then it usually says, and we're staying. And we're not going away. So Jesus, at the beginning of the week, does a different kind of parade. The kind of parade that actually just, you know, puts it in the face of the people in power. 
And it's a good long tradition since then because it was creative, it was joyful, it was celebrative, and it was done in a way that people couldn't make sense of it particularly, at least the ones in power. They knew something was being said, but they weren't quite sure what. Now in our culture, in our day, we call that camp. We call it camp. When you do some sort of demonstration, when you plan an event, when you plan something in some ways that brings together different parts that don't seem to match and you put them together in ways that people get confused because they think they know the answers, but all of a sudden it's presented to them in a way that's different. You know, is this male or female? Is this masculine or feminine? What is this? You know, I think I know what's supposed to be right. Is it okay for a preacher to wear a bonnet? Is he still serious with the bonnet on? You know, I would say yes. So camp is a long tradition with us. And in the scripture today, we get that in this pride parade. We get it when you mash categories together and you try to turn the world upside down, which Jesus is trying to do so that people hear the word a little bit differently. This idea of camp comes from many people, but Marjorie Gerber in the book Vested Interests. She says, humor and sarcasm are a survival skill for people who are oppressed. They're the way we find God right in the middle, right in the middle of where it hurts. That's where we find God, right in the middle. Camp is alive and tells the truth. It is sacred storytelling, and it exposes and critiques. It is a mode of possibility. It doesn't necessarily offer you an answer. It just opens up a space for a discussion, for a conversation, for possibility. Camp is redemptive and subversive. It can confuse people. It can make them angry. But it reveals and it gives space. You didn't know you were doing something that Jesus did, did you? Pride parade. Get a little bit campy. When I was uh, in college here at University of Houston, we would go to the Southwest Conference games. Any of you remember a thing called the Southwest Conference? No longer exists. But I was one of the Cougars, and I would sometimes go to the other games, too, in the conference. I haven't been able to keep up with college football since because they just destroyed my conference. My family's gone. I don't know what to do. But we would go up to A&M. We'd go to Austin. We'd go all different places for these games. And I went to a game between A&M and Rice University that was uh, on Kyle Field up at A&M. And so here at this game, which was a, a, a conflict of people and styles. Now, Kyle Field is the holy territory. When you have, yeah, someone's raising their hand out there. It is holy ground. You know, you don't mess with Kyle Field. Certain things can't happen on that field, and you respect it. And so this is a part of the culture of Texas A&M University. And Aggies will let you know if you do something wrong. They will. They will. And so the mob from Rice University, the Marching Owl Band, follows the Aggie marching band during halftime. And the Aggie marching band does this very clear, precise military drill back and forth, in and out, well choreographed, beautiful. You know it takes hours to get it down so that they don't bump into each other because they're turning all over, the t all over the place. How do they do that? And they do it perfectly and they leave. So the Rice mob band gets out there. You always went to rice games not expecting them to win, because they didn't <laughs> back then. But you went to the game to support your friends and to see the band perform. 
the marching owl band. That was the thing that you did, because they always did something clever. They always did something with satire. They always were making a political comment of one time or another. And so, for their halftime performance, they had learned, it must have taken them hours, how to do this military close drill. And they were doing it back and forth, back and forth, not bumping into each other, all the turns. They were doing it very carefully. And then right in the middle of it, the music changed a little bit, and they started to do a little limp in it, and a little like, skip as they were doing it, as they were going along. And so they went this way and that way, and back and forward. And it was actually, you know, beautiful. But some people didn't like it. Some people thought that they were spitting on Kyle Field, that it was blasphemy. We had to stop the game. <laughs> Students came out of the stands. The band circled them. They couldn't get off the field. They kept the marching owl band there for over an hour. Then finally, they got escorted to their buses. What they did was camp. They probably didn't know how powerful it was going to be. But they were making a statement about what it means to be rigid and structured. And what does it mean to all of a sudden have a breath of the Spirit come in and have it shift and change? Sometimes camp is like that. We know we need to put these things together, but we actually don't know what they're going to produce until we're right there in the middle of it and we're surrounded by an angry crowd and they have to escort us to buses. You know, amazing. Well, Jesus is doing that kind of thing with this palm parade. He is actually challenging the powers that be, getting himself in a little trouble and those around him. You probably had to be a little brave to go and watch because maybe there were people looking out to see who was there, who was supporting. So even showing up could have been a danger to you. But that's the kind of thing that camp does. Even with just a little planning, it can rock the world. When I was serving at Reconciling Ministries Network before getting here, we had a major event where the World Church of United Methodists gathered in Pittsburgh. And at that event in Pittsburgh, they were passing some pretty negative laws and so we decided we had to respond. And we're, we're at the Three Rivers uh, Conference Center where the Three Rivers are together. And in that space, water, which is very symbolic, it was everywhere. And so what we decided to do was we decided that we would tell people that these lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people were baptized Christians. They were people of faith. They were your children. They were your clergy. They were your pastors. They were in your family, in and out. And so as we decided to do that, we decided that we would think about baptism, that place of promise, that place where it says, you are mine, I am, you are my beloved. And so we remembered that, and we wanted to remind the church that everyone in the church was beloved in that way. And so we consecrated a bowl of water out from the rivers and blessed it as baptismal water. And we went inside the conference center. We weren't asked in. We just went in. And as we went in, hundreds of us with this bottle, this, this big container of water, we, we danced around the assembly, essentially a legislative assembly, to we are marching in the light of God. So we danced around with this bowl and we took it around and then someone got real creative because the assembly was divided into the people voting and then it was divided into the bishops and the real religious leaders up there. You know, so someone in our group decided, oh, we need to go up there. So we're dancing. We dance up in and out of the bishops. And then there's this point in time when the people carry in the bowl of water. They go to this big baptismal font that had been the center of the conference. 
They lift high the water of baptism and they pour it to join in with the baptismal font water that's already there. You would have thought, you know, people said it was sacrilege that we desecrated. Well, we were just saying that there are holy homosexuals. You know? Not like the comics. Holy homosexuals, Batman. You know? Holy homosexuals. We were saying that we are your family. But you know, in that moment in time, we put together something they didn't expect to be together. We put together people, our bodies, our faith, our sexuality, our spirituality, all in one package, and they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle God's love and grace that was that large. You know? So they called the police. <laughs> we have never been asked back. <laughs> but this is what Jesus was doing too. I was going into my faith home to do that work. Jesus is going into Jerusalem, into Jesus' faith home. This is where you go if you're Jewish. Going right into that place. And you know, there's just no kind of hurt like that church hurt. There's no kind of pain that's that deep because when it goes that deep, church hurt just kind of gets in there in a way that the other stuff doesn't. So here he is going to his home, going to his church, going to his faith group and saying, we've got to get back to the basics, people. We've got to get back to what God's calling us to, to love our neighbor, to love self. Oh, my. And they're not able to hold it together in the way that Jesus is giving it to them. So they get mad and they get angry and they plot to hurt him. The man, Jesus' own church family. Some of you may know what that's like. Doesn't want him to come in. Well, we can take a lesson from this from Brene Brown. Jesus has been daring greatly. That's the name of her book, Daring Greatly. He's been taking a risk. He's been being vulnerable. He's been asking for what he needs. And he goes into the, into the city. We, however, sometimes try and avoid that very action. We put barriers between us and others. We try to stay safe. We try to play it in a way that we look perfect. We've been talking about these things. It worries us. When Brene did her research on people who seem to be able to move forward and have intimacy and vulnerability and people who kind of stay stuck... You know, she said that there was an interesting difference in them. The people who seemed to be centered in shame and thinking they weren't enough called it excruciating vulnerability. Does that mean you want it? Excruciating vulnerability. It's interesting that the word excruciating is actually based, similar word root to crucifixion. Excruciating vulnerability. And she said the people who were able to shift from excruciating vulnerability to just understanding vulnerability as necessary were people who could love themselves, were people who could have compassion for others, were people who could connect, were people who could let those barriers down. So at the core of her work, and remember she called it betrayal, she found out that the key was vulnerability. What Jesus showed us in the garden to be able to ask for and need help Brene says her, her fight with it, that she lost her fight with vulnerability. But in losing her fight with vulnerability, she won her life. And don't we know that truth this week? Losing the fight and winning life. She takes it from the quote from her book about, from Theodore Roosevelt, and this is what he said. 
Not all of it, but part of it. He says, it is not the critic who counts. The credit belongs to the man who strives, who errs, who comes short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows triumph, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while he was daring greatly. We each get the chance to pour out our lives. We get to choose how we're going to do it, safe, secure, behind the barriers, or if we will risk vulnerability, if we will reach out, if we will dare greatly. The parade wasn't the only thing Jesus did that made him mad. He goes right from the parade to the temple, which is his home church, right? And right there at the temple, he turns the tables over, the tables where they receive money, the tables where they sell sacrifices. Jesus goes and turns the table over. So not only is he in their face, he's also messing with the economic system because this is an important part of Jerusalem, is coming and offering your sacrifices. This is the real bread and butter. Better not mess with that. But Jesus is saying something about that system that's not fair. Something about it's not right. And to make the political statement, he goes right in and turns the table over. So he helped himself get in a little trouble that week by these actions. But we are called to actually do some of this table turning ourselves. If we follow this model, to dare greatly, to be vulnerable, to be able to risk turning the tables over, but to bring friends along so that we're not doing it alone. There's a wonderful story of someone who is so bound up by their fear of vulnerability. It's in the movie Lars and the Real Girl. I don't know if you've seen that. But in the movie Lars and the Real Girl, this one character, Lars, has been so hurt because both his parents died. He actually lived in the basement of the house, and then that was too close to everyone, so he lived in an apartment beside the house, what used to be a garage. And to, in order to not touch people, he would wear layer and layer and layer of clothing. Not only would he wear clothing, he would wear gloves. So he wouldn't have to even handshake someone and actually get a touch. He was that afraid of hurt. He was that afraid from what had happened in his life. And the whole movie is the story of how he's able to move from being that armored, that sheltered, to being able to receive love and care again in his life, to be vulnerable. And to do that, the therapist actually talks to him and he says, touch hurts. And she asks, how does it hurt? And she says, is, is it like a burn or a bruise? And he said, no, it's kind of like when you're out and your feet get frozen and then you come back inside. It's all of that hurt from when your feet were frozen to where they get back to normal again. That's what it feels like. It hurts that bad. So she starts with just a gentle touching of his wrist. Can he tolerate it? Yes. And his forearm, can he tolerate it? Hurt a little bit more, but a little bit. Then she puts her hand on his neck, and he runs away. It's too soon. The barriers are still in place. But as the movie progresses and progresses and progresses, the people love him into being able to be connected again. The people from the church, the people who volunteer, they all care about him so much and do whatever he needs to find that healing. And there's a place where he has put all his energy and attention on this human substitute, this adult-sized doll that he says is dying. And in the death of this figment of his imagination, the people surround him in his grief. They say, this is what we do. We sit. We sit with you. 
And in that moment in time, he's able to release what he had been used for connection. At the end of the movie, there's a real girl standing next to him. And he reaches out and grabs her hand. We have to learn to let go of the shields, to just dare greatly to reach each other, just to reach each other. And here God in Christ is saying, I want to reach you. I will come in and turn the tables upside down. I will come in and let all the powers that be get angry. I won't leave you alone in your moments of struggle. I will be with you. But I need you shed all of the layers. Take off the pieces that are keeping me from you. Reach back. Reach out your hand so that I may touch you. We are in that place for vulnerability. Don't run away from it. Let God find you in it. Jesus knew and brought friends with him. Others have known and carried people with them as well. Harvey Milk knew. Martin Luther King Jr. knew. Gandhi knew. And still they dared greatly because that was the risk before them. And I love this one. Rosa Parks knew. She knew her life was going to change because she risked doing what people didn't expect, put herself and her body in a position that she got in trouble. But she started a movement. And once you know one thing about Rosa is she was 42 years old when she did that. At 42 years old, she decided to dare greatly and to stand up or sit down in that bus. But she wasn't alone. She had people around her supporting her, caring for her all the way through as she did that. And I wonder, you know, 42 years, that sounds familiar to me. Seems like we're 42 years old. If Rosa can stand on a bus and dare greatly and end up helping change the world. Resurrection Church, you are 42 years old. You think you can dare greatly? Are you ready to change the world? Not that you haven't already, but are you ready to change the world again? Are you ready, ready to let go of the layers that we come out of our own shell, whatever that shell may be, that we're able to go into the world, that we're able to go to family and friends, that we're able to say, God loves everyone. Have you got love? You know, and thereby transform all that is. 42 years. It's a beginning. 42 years coming out of our shell. You're invited at the end of the service to pick up that egg, to pray on it all week, and let resurrection come to you. Bring it back with a donation for what will be the future. How are we to dare greatly now? You know, there might be a little camp involved. There might be a lot of laughter involved. What there will be is a lot of God's love. In Christ's name, amen.